My mic sounds nice. Test one. I said my microphone sounds nice when it is on. Test two. Welcome you all to another episode of Beyond the Rim, hashtag BTR. And I'm your host, the Deadster, Nesta Dudley. And this is our first podcast that is on location. And I'm on location in the wonderful home of Alan Vickers, who is the manager of New England Comic Books in Malden, Massachusetts on Pleasant Street. Malden is 5.5 miles north of Boston. Alan, say hello to the streamers out there. Hello, streamers, and thank you for having me, Nestor. It's a pleasure. Thank you again for opening up your home to me. And what we are going to do here on BTR is that this is going to be the first in a series of black superheroes in the comic books or African-American superheroes in the comic books. And today, we're going to start off with a character, Icon. Icon from Milestone Comics. So, first, we're going to talk about their writers and the creators of Icon. And I'm going to let Alan go over that for us. All right. Well, thank you. Um, I think it's safe to say that Icon Comics, or I'm I'm sorry, Milestone Comics, began around 1992. Uh, Several uh, black African-American creators uh, who realized at the time that the work they could get was limited. A lot of uh, publishers at the time were, actually there were things said such as, oh, we've already got a black artist, thanks. Also, there weren't a lot of characters at the time that were black and African-American. We had Luke Cage, Power Man, Hero for Hire. We had the Black Panther, Black Lightning. A few characters that were, in some cases, more supporting characters than lead characters. And they came out of the 60s, the 70s, and they were more black exploitation than they were superheroes, simply people first and a genre later. Well, these creators, they were friends, they were co-workers in the industry. They realized that the only way they were going to start drawing characters that looked like them and thought like them was if they created them. If they waited for the publishers to do it, they'd still probably be waiting. So they set out, they got together, Uh, some like-minded that had been friends since they were kids and some that had become friends in the short time they worked in the industry together, sat down and they came up with first the corporation. They decided who would be in charge of this and who would do that and they they did a fine job of it. Uh, They got the backing they needed financially. They found people who were good at management and they found people who were good writers, great writers and great artists. Well, by 1993, they had worked out all the issues with incorporating. They had begun their Bible of the backstory of the Milestone universe. And they just needed to get the stuff published at that point. They realized their capital, most of it went into the creation of characters, uh, paying the rent for their offices, getting the stuff off the ground, starting their own publishing venture becoming their own publisher was going to be difficult. So they went looking to other publishers that were already in the business 
hoping to create a situation where they would be more of an imprint and they'd allow someone else to deal with the printing, the shipping, that sort of stuff. Well, they ended up at DC Comics, home of Superman and Batman. And as the story goes, they brought their pitch. Uh, the uh, Paul Levitz, who was a VP at DC at the time, was on his way out the door to head home, looked at the pitch, said, it was kind of interesting, put it down, got halfway to the door, thought about some stuff he had just read, went back to the desk, and the next thing you know, it was late at night, he was still reading the scene, he couldn't get home. Contacted the guys the next day, and the ball started rolling. Uh, Jeanette Kahn, who was the president at DC at the time, she took a look at it, was delighted. These were characters that, even if they were recognizable archetypes, which is what the creators set out to do, they were cast in a brand new light. They lived in a new environment. They, they talked and thought in ways that characters that had been around for close to 60 years at that point didn't. You had a, a fresh take on life. You had a black perspective, which was something that, you know, when you have white men writing and drawing these things, you just weren't going to get. So the guys at Milestone, they finally launched in 93 to huge ratings. The, the book sold incredibly well. Something that a lot of the publishers didn't know was they had a much larger black audience, a, an audience of color in general, right. um, that was untapped. It was difficult. I mean, these, these kids wanted to read about these characters. There was just that getting that foot in the door, finding something relatable to in all of these Spider-Mans and Ghost Riders and you know, Wonder Woman and all of that. Well, suddenly here was a company that was saying, come on in and check these out. These are the people that live next door to you. These are the, the people that share the home with you. These are the people that you work with every day. There are more than generic white people out there in the world, so therefore there should be more than that in your comic books. And bang, stuff took off. Um, creators that had been recognized as a talent but always drifting from book to book were suddenly names. Uh, Dennis Cowan, uh, one of the organizers, one of the founders of the company. He'd been a terrific artist. He'd worked on Power Man and Iron Fist. He had worked on The Question at DC. He began the art, the art version of everything. He came up with characters would look like. He did the initial sketching and such. Um, you had Dwayne McDuffie, who a lot of people know now. Unfortunately, the man has passed away. But his name was huge uh, in fans of the animated work that DC's done the last few years. A lot of the Justice League um, direct-to-DVD video films spearheaded by him. Um, the Static Shock cartoon that was on some years ago, all him. And that is actually derived from one of the books that Milestone put out. We also had uh, Mark D. Bright, uh, in fact, the artist on Icon, uh, who had had a really good run at Marvel on books like Iron Man and the West Coast Avengers. Um, a, a good dozen or so people coming from different walks and different talents came in and got the company going. And one of the first, if not the first book published, I believe was Icon number one. That is 
fascinating story how these artists in the industry, and these are all named people. These aren't yeah. interns. These are all no, named. No. These are all named people that worked on yeah. major books yep. from both companies. Yes, for quite a while they had been this. Arvel Jones was an artist at Marvel in the seventies. Uh, Keith Pollard. Um, these were black creators that had been involved in the seventies, but were hired to. Oh, so-and-so's late with his book. Can you do a fill-in this month? Can you do a fill-in that month? And they were exceptional artists, but they were never given a chance. And Dennis Cowan came along, fantastic artist, a favorite of mine, in fact, um, from the beginning of his career. Uh, won me over completely when he worked on The Question mm -hmm. at DC. I've never seen uh, just his line work is amazing. Couldn't get work. It was one of those things where, I don't know, I don't want to throw out the term racism. It's an ugly word. I don't like, you know, some, some surmising that that's what it was. You know, maybe because they were younger men, maybe the older men that were well-known in the business at the time got the jobs first, but these guys were talents. And Milestone... 1992, 93, they're putting this together. I've seen these names in, on comic books going back to the mid-70s. So these weren't kids by the time they got to it. Although, to their credit, I do think one of the things that's interesting, they were all in their early to mid-30s. So they had been working on this right out of high school, mm -hmm. you know, while in college, if, whatever. Um, still that age group where you're full of a lot of energy you know you're right. not a kid anymore you're a grown-up but you're not you know i don't think i get out of a chair without making a noise in these <laughs> days you know <laughs> these guys were full of a lot of energy and they knew what they wanted they wanted to see themselves in the works they produced and the works that their family and friends read uh, so they got off their butts and they did it and it was an amazing thing to see. When those books dropped, they, they hit big. And there was discussions. I was like, did you hear Dennis Cowan's doing this? You know, did you hear Mark Bright's doing that? You know, and there were creators that were known to be creators of color. They were, oh, do you think so-and-so is going to get, you know, will he go over there? Will he do that? Maybe this is a company to watch. Because people that were known talent were going over there. And they were... Out of nowhere. It was great stuff. On to the superhero known as Icon. Icon is from the planet Terminus. So he is a Terminite. And his name is Argus. Argus is a mediator on that planet. A very successful mediator. What a mediator is, is a lawyer on that planet. Very successful so he took a vacation on a Starliner, which would be probably the equivalent of an ocean liner ship, Starliner. So the ship malfunctioned or was the ship attacked? A little teaser out there. But <laughs> the ship malfunctioned and Arnis went to a life pod and he escaped. The life pod 
landed on Earth in the year 1839. And when that life pod landed, what happened next, Alan? Well, uh, sort of in a Superman-like way, uh, we have a strange visitor from another planet. But in the case of the way this life pod functioned, it allowed the, the marooned you know, victim uh, of the crash, you know, for whatever the reason, as you say, um, to adapt an appearance equivalent to the dominant life form on the planet. And the first uh, person that Icon encounters is a runaway slave woman. So the first thing he does is sort of twofold, takes on her appearance of a, of a black baby mm-hmm. uh, so that we get us parallel to Superman, but we also get the idea that you see a woman when her child's in trouble. You know, they talk about, you know, she-lions sh- uh, she and stuff like that, just fighting to the end to protect a cub. He becomes a baby so that she will protect him. His, his background... Uh, unknown at the time when we read this story or why he does what he does. It's all about the pod at that point, protecting its passenger. So he takes on what he thinks is the life in charge of the planet. He's correct in that way, you know, homo sapien, but what he doesn't know is what's going on in America at that time is that blacks are slaves in most of the country at that time. Certainly uh, not in positions of power. So he's uh, gone from escape to, I don't want to maybe say trapped. Right. In a, in a tricky situation. Right. Um, very fascinating. And this is a primitive world because Earth is a primitive world to Terminus. Yeah. And in the comic book universe, has there ever been a world that Earth is more advanced than? Because every time we have a visitor. That's a great point. <laughs> That's a great point. Every time we have a visitor from a planet, it's yeah. it's a planet that is uh, more technology than Earth. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. Yeah, so, but I guess that if Earth had superior technology, then Earthlings would be style lining yeah. and maybe crash one day. We'd be above <laughs> yeah. all the horrible things that he's going to worry about. Um, yeah, no, that's a very good point. Um the idea that he has to wait for the technology to get better. And it's sort of one of uh, an interesting idea that when we hear about Superman-like, you know, Kryptonians, people come to the, they all seem to be scientists all the time. Here's a guy that's a lawyer. If you or I were trapped on a primitive world, I wouldn't have a clue how to make a flashlight. <laughs> I mean, if I got to sit around and wait, I'm waiting a long time. Uh, you're waiting uh, in the dock, yeah, obviously, too. in the too. dark, and, you know, what am I going to listen to? Oh, there's nothing to listen to. Oh, my God, what am I going to do now? It's terrible. What a, what a time to be there. Um, and, in fact, you know, in the South, where not a lot of industry was coming out of, you know, at that time, uh, a lot of uh, invention was coming out of Western Europe at that point. Um, some things in the North, but not much. Right. So based on my based on my research, so this this life pod alters his DNA to take on the dominant life form, which is human beings. What I'm not clear of is that was he aware like was he did he still have that terminite terminus brain? Was he still an adult but just went through 
childhood. I mean, he obviously learned to speak the language because he grew up. Yeah, he grew up on this on this planet. Yeah. So my research could not determine if that was the case. I'm assuming that it was that he kind of knew. It seemed it. Yeah. Yeah. Early issues of Icon, um, they gloss over a lot of his time between being the infant as we first meet him and then the fully grown, in fact, you know, posing as the great-grandson of his original self. Um, Not, nothing is really specified, nothing is said, but you almost get the feeling from the way it's paced as written that he was biding his time. Right. You know, I, I don't know. And we can bring in all sorts of questions like, how do you fit all that information to a brain the size of a baby's? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we need bigger brains. Um, we're not born with our full-size brains, but we're born with bigger brains than most animals are born. So, you know, we can, and we don't know what their biology was, is anything like that. So, you know, there's a there's an old adage in comic books when someone would write a letter and say, how how could Superman do this and do that? And the letter writer, you know, would get the response, because he's Superman. <laughs> and they go, okay, and they'd buy it. Um, with Icon, one of the things that was really cool about that character, in my opinion, these are grown men coming up with books they knew were going to be written by teenagers and, and older men and women. Uh, they decided to try to work the science out ahead of time. Um, how the pod worked, how the energies worked, and his superpowers worked, and all this. I wouldn't be surprised if, quite possibly, that question came up, and they said, mm, "I don't know how that works." So let's just not talk about it. That's, that one is because he's Icon, um, or it's entirely possible that. Had the book lasted longer, had the company been around, it could very well have been, and here's the untold tale of Icon in 1941. And did he wake up one day and remember that he was who he was, or did he, you know, always know? I don't know, they may have had it planned. It's hard to tell. (laughs) Right. Growing up, Icon would discover his superpowers and his abilities. And they really don't go into that. There's no written history with that. And that's consistent to true life, that there's mm-hmm. really not a lot of written history mm-hmm. of people from African descent, right. African-Americans, yeah. black. So that makes complete sense. So there's yeah. no documentation of when he lifted his first horse, say, yeah. or something like that. Remember, this is the South. This is during the days of slavery. So, But as he grew older, there is documentation that due to his super strength, that he would take the workload plowing the fields or doing whatever that slaves did at that time, all yeah. that grunt work, he would take yeah. the workload to 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 give his to give his to give his people, his people now to give his people like a little bit of break. He would take a long, yeah. long workload. He would also work on the or be a part of the network known as the Underground Railroad System. Mm-hmm. So he helped slaves flee to the northern part of the country and to Canada for freedom. And in 1865, at the age of 26, slavery was done. Slavery was abolished. Icon went on to Fisk University during the Reconstruction. 
So anybody who don't know about Reconstruction is basic U.S. history. We're not we're not gonna go over that. <laughs> Talk to Mister Google. You'll find out what you'll find out what Reconstruction was all about. So the character went through Reconstruction, went to Fisk University, where he studied law mm -hmm. to be a lawyer. Yeah. Remember, he was a lawyer on his planet. So he went on to meet his soon-to-be wife or future wife, Estelle Jackson, in Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance. Mm. What they did, they expatriated and they moved to France. They moved to France because even though mm -hmm. slavery was finished and all that stuff, it's still, America is still a racist yeah. country. Look at Josephine Baker. Right. Stories like that. Right. So, but he also, oh, I forgot to mention that he fought in the Civil War on the side of the North. Mm. I forgot to put that little tidbit. I remember that because he also fought in World War II, mm -hmm. side of the Allies. Him and Estelle moved back after the war, back to the United States after the war, and back to Harlem. Things were still bad, in some cases even worse, before he left. They wanted to have children. She wanted to have children, but Icon's an alien. This is pre-Icon. Augustus was an alien. Oh, I should mention that when they became free, when they um, got their freedom, he took the last name of Freeman. Yeah. Forgot to mention that. So Augustus Freeman. They wanted to have children. They were unable to have children because he's an alien. Now what I don't get but we'll talk about in the second half, <laughs> is that since the I, since the uh, pod altered his DNA, he has human DNA, also has Terminus DNA. Mm. Obviously, it was not compatible enough to mm. have a child. Yeah. In 1977, his wife passed away, unfortunately, and he decided to leave Harlem because the memories was just too painful and move to Dakota City. And it's also important for us to let the streamers know out there that Icon or Augustus was a Republican. Mm. Mm. Very conservative. Yes, very right wing. You look into your history books, Lincoln was a Republican. Very conservative. And the Republican Party was the party that wanted equal treatment for blacks and poor whites. Yep. So he was a Republican. That really plays into it in the second half of this podcast. Uh, yeah. Um, one of the things, uh, Dwayne McDuffie, who was the creator of Icon, um, he considered himself to be very left, very liberal-minded, uh, not to the point of you know not hearing the other side or seeing the other side of the line. Um, but he was he was a, a young liberal man. He had uh, decided that because uh, he wanted to play with those boundaries, that Icon would be a staunch Republican. Maybe not in love with everything the party did, but. 
very few people love everything their party does. It's sort of how you work around things, make your choices. Uh, one of the things very interesting about that, he found out through his friend uh, Derek Diggle. Uh, Derek Dingle, I'm sorry. Uh, Derek was one of the founders. Uh, he was sort of the money man behind Milestone. And Dennis Cowan and uh, Derek had grown up together, creating comics in their living rooms, that kind of thing. Well, he got a call from Supreme Court Justice uh, Clarence Thomas saying, I'm a big fan of the book. And he forwarded on the phone number of uh, Dwayne McDuffie, who spoke to Thomas and found out just how much he, he admired the character and he loved his stance. And McDuffie had to sit there and say, yeah, but I, I don't write it to actually, <laughs> you know, get someone to come over to that side. He says, I, I do it to sort of showcase more than, you know, teach. But it worked, you know. It was a, a good character that allowed him to put other sides into focus. You know, it's preaching to the choir, as they say. How interesting is that to read? If everybody that showed at the book, if you made Icon uh, a left-wing liberal, and everybody that showed up was exactly the same way, and at the end of every issue it was like, way to go, Icon. You, you did it just the way I would have. <laughs> it's not interesting. But to be able to use it as a way to maybe explain, I have a problem with this, and maybe you, the reader, should too, or feel free to write me and tell me why I'm wrong, who knows? But he definitely reached the right ear with <laughs> Clarence Thomas. <laughs> Not something he wanted to hear back about, but yeah, it's that's an impressive uh, little note to have in your resume <laughs> that uh, you uh, you've helped to define um, policy in America in the '90s. I, I think that's just great. <laughs> but Dwayne did not so much. <laughs> <laughs> so, who is? Augustus Freeman IV. Yes, I did say the fourth. Talking about the same person. How did he get to the fourth? We will go over that in the second half. Just when did he don the costume and become icon? Again, in the second half of this podcast. Right now, we're going to go into our break. And now I have a question for you. True. Because we're the same age. Remember Schoolhouse Rock? Sure do. <laughs> Man, lived for it. <laughs> Well, my favorite schoolhouse rock was Verb. That's what's That's a happening. Good one. That is a good one to make a favorite. Yeah. So we are going to go into Verb. That's what's happening. <laughs> Nesta Dudley, Alan Vickers, we will see you after the break. Get my thing in action Burn. To be, to see, to feel, to live Burn. That's what's happening I put my heart in action Burn. To run, to go, to get, to give Burn. You're what's happening That's where I find satisfaction, yeah. yeah To search, to find, to have, to hold when I use my imagination, I think I plot, I plan, I dream, turning in towards creation. I make, I write, I dance, I sing, when I'm feeling really active. 
I run, I ride, I swim, I fly Other times when life is easy I rest, I sleep, I sit, I lie can take a noun and bend it, give me a noun. Basketball, break and plow. Make it a verb and really send it. Show me how. Oh, I don't know my own power. Burn. I get my thing in action, Burn. in being, Burn. in doing, Burn. in saying. A verb expresses action, being or a state of being. What's done to it? What does it say? Ooh, I can question like, what is it? I can order like, go get it. When I hit, I need an object. Ooh, when I see, I see the object. I can question like, what is it? I can order like, go get it. Verb, that's what's happening. Oh, Al, the memories. That is still good today. <laughs> Nothing's ever going to beat that stuff. Yeah, when something's good, to the core good, it just stays good forever. <laughs> Nesta Dudley, back with Alan Vickers, who is the manager of New England Comic Books. This is in Malden, Massachusetts on Pleasant Street. And that is 5.5 miles north of Boston. So when we last left our hero, or I should say pre-hero, he had just lost his wife. He moved out of Harlem. He moved to Dakota City because the memories was just too painful for him to start life anew. So now we fast forward almost 20 years into the future, yeah. 1993. He is a lawyer, successful law firm. This dude has money. Yeah. He has a huge tower. Money, clout, you name it. He's the epitome of the the success story uh, for the Republican Party, that right. kind of thing. Right. He's living the American dream. But Alan, what I like to say is he's living the African-American yeah. dream. Yeah, <laughs> okay. There you go. <laughs> so lawyer, very successful Tons of money, got cash, has a big mansion. One night, a bunch of teenagers, a bunch of kids, they decided that they were going to rob this big-ass house, which happened to be Augustus Freeman IV. And part of that gang was 
Raquel Irvin. These are 15, 16 year olds. Raquel really wasn't into this, but she went along with it. Peer pressure. Yeah. Once the gang broke into the mansion, she came across his library. And this is an inspiring writer. So she was like in awe with all the with all the books and the knowledge that was in that library. And it's a bunch of black literature. Mm. A bunch of black literature. So when Augustus came down, one of the, the leader of the gangbanger points a gun at him and thinks that he's the butler because certainly no brother can afford this. <laughs> yeah. Think he's the butler. And Augustus let him know that he was not the butler. And Alan, what's happened next? Uh, Augustus takes a round right in the chest. Um, it was surprising when you read that. Um, the hero. You know, we don't know anything about him since the Civil War. We've you know, read the first issue. But there's a jump. There's a jump in time. There's some mention made of the passage of time, but not the events in his life. No details on what he does with himself or can do. And suddenly he takes that round in the chest and goes down. And the kids freak out. This is, you know, more than they expected. They're in the deep end of the pool. And it's all going south. They're just, you know, they're freaking out. And then he stands up. And he's had enough. That's, you know, all right, guys, put the gun down, do this, do that. Um, great tense scene with them just flipping out. It's it's part superhero book, part zombie movie with the guy just getting back to his feet. Um, and there's, you know, it, it takes him a minute to heal. We see the, the wound is closing, which is something we, you know, we've talked about this icon is the same sort of archetype as a Superman. And when Superman gets shot they bounce off they just you know the little wings and off they go um you know his his bathrobe is all chewed up and there's some grizzly looking skin behind it and there's a little bit of you know wisp of smoke coming off and he's vulnerable not invulnerable vulnerable but apparently just badass tough you know the fact he just looks at them he's not you know at a loss of words he gets up and says i've had enough of this and then they flip out. It's how he makes contact, first contact with Raquel. Um, the the two kids that are there that pointed the gun at him, the that are kind of the screaming and the shouting at him and making the demands, um, they're escorted out. If I remember correctly, you know, the police come and just sort of, you know, all right, let's, let's go. But Raquel manages to avoid all that stuff. And when he confronts her, he quickly sees that she's not the same as these two boys that have just left. She's angry. She's very angry. She's angry at the position life has put her in, that she had, that she had to go into this house to do this thing with these two guys that she's clearly much smarter than. Right. Um, and then she's seeing this man who, as you said, the, the first thought when they broke in was he was the butler. And she's like, you know, my God, you, this is your house. These are your books. This is, this is your place. This is your environment. Something she's never seen, never tasted, only heard about, and probably suspected was untrue. 
because she's never been able to physically encounter it before. It's a really great moment. It's probably the pivotal moment in the book, I think, and if not the series, because one of this, as the the book will continue, I think one of the really interesting things about this book is it's called Icon, and it sometimes it has the the little. Uh, a uh, little subtitle under it will say, with Rocket, you know, the human Rocket or whatever they call her. Um, she's the viewpoint of the book. She's the, the everyman that we see through. Um, Doctor Who is a television show, has been doing that in recent years. They've been very smart. You know, the Doctor is an alien, and then he has a sidekick, and the sidekick is the person that sees everything goes all the way back to Sherlock Holmes Dr. Watson a lot of people forget that the Sherlock Holmes books are written if you will by Dr. Watson so when we're told how brilliant Holmes is or how frightening the killer is it's how Dr. Watson saw everything and when we see the threats that Icon will encounter or the responsibilities he sometimes chooses to not be a part of, to let go. It's through Rocket's eyes. And when we hear how the world is, it's Rocket's statements. So that moment when he meets her and she's angry, that's that's the book. Right, right there is the book. It, and it will be the book through to the end of the original series and through the various attempts at restarting it later on. If there was no rocket in this book, Icon wouldn't be half as strong a title as it is. Augustus had a message for those boys. Hmm. If you want something, you have to pay for it. You don't steal, you have to pay for it. If you don't have the money, you gotta work for it. Mm -hmm. You gotta earn it. He threatens those boys, if you ever do this again, I'm going to be watching. If you ever do this again, I'm going to get you. Yeah. This is a good spot to mention that Augustus is six foot eight. Yes. He's six yes. foot eight. Chiseled. <laughs> 290 yeah. pounds. Yeah. This is a big yeah. brother. Yeah. You know, like 0.3 body fat on him. <laughs> if, if there was ever a scared straight moment, yeah. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure that yeah. was yeah. the moment. Raquel goes home and just in awe, as you outlined earlier, that, this is his world. This is yeah. his house. And this guy has these powers. He could be doing good. So Raquel gets out the patent paper, and uh, she makes some designs. And she goes back to the mansion. It was either within 24 hours or within 48 hours. Yeah, 36. Let's okay, meet we'll, in the middle. <laughs> we'll call it that. 36 hours later, she goes back to the mansion. The, the housekeeper lets her in. I wonder how that conversation went. Housekeeper lets her in, leads her straight to the den where Augustus Freeman IV, lawyer, is sitting there, and she has these drawings. And these drawings of two individuals. It's him, Augustus, in this costume. Hmm. She was like, you have abilities. You have power. You should be out there doing something with this. This is how I see you dress. And this other picture was a, for lack of a better word, a sidekick. Yeah. And it was her, it was a female. Yeah. She wants to be with him. She wants to learn from him. She wants to help him. And 
and to elevate herself as well. Exactly. She no longer has to live the life she's lived. This is that moment. Opportunity has knocked. She has met this man that can change her life for the better. Right. And she damned if she's going to let it go. Right, right. You know? And the only reason why he even listens and considers this is because she reminds him of his wife that passed away. Mm. She was saying, you should be doing good. You should be you know, helping. You should be doing more. In the first half, we never went over how he would use his powers now and then, stay in the shadows. Mm. So he have used his powers, but hadn't used these powers in almost 20 years when his wife passed mm. away. So he takes that advisement, and shortly after, he has two costumes. He has a costume for himself and a costume for Raquel. But before, we get a little ahead of ourselves. How did he come up with the name Icon? It was Raquel that named yeah, him. Yeah, again, here, here's our, our central focus of the book. You can call the book Icon. You can tell people that all you want. It's Raquel's show. You know, it, it can be the history, the future history, the you know everything about Icon, but it's, it's through that filter of Raquel. And the name. You know, he's he's Augustus until he meets her. And then he's Icon. And there's even that wonderful bit where he sees the drawings and they're labeled. And he says, you know, what's this Icon? And she says, well, that'll be you. That's, oh, you know, I know what an Icon is, but why why have you chosen that word? And she describes, you know, more than a, a painting in Russia, it's going to be what you'll bring to people. Because, you know... There's that, that one wonderful old adage that just rings true forever. You know, teach a man to fish and he'll feed himself, you know, or just feed a man kind of thing. And that's, he's going to do more, more than stop crime with his powers or do this or do that. When he stands up and, as you said, six foot, you know, whatever, and however many pounds and... You know, he's going to stand at the top of a staircase or something and, and talk to people, not lecture them, talk to them. They're going to hear those words, and they're going to, like her, from what she's seen in his home, aspire to be more. So that's an icon. It's going to instill that. It's going to represent something to the people that will meet him, um, which also brings something you, you mentioned a, a minute ago about when the housekeeper lets Rocket back into the house, and you're like, what kind of a conversation you know, was that, that she worked her way in the front door? It strikes me that Icon himself probably has images, types that he responds to, mm-hmm. and as Raquel reminds him a bit of Estelle, of his wife who tried to get him, get up, do this. There's nothing clearly romantic between Augustus and the housekeeper, but this is a woman he's shared a lot of secrets with and lives in his home. Wouldn't surprise me if when he met her, there was something about his mother, his earth mother, a woman that would care for him, take care of him, protect him. And this woman, if she is of that nature, and this teenage girl shows up and says, I want to talk to him, if she didn't look down and say, this is the kind of woman he needs to talk to right now, reminds me a bit of how he describes his wife. You know, so Icon himself needs icons. 
He needs that inspiration. And I think that's the whole bit is, yeah, he's the character of Icon, but Raquel walks into his life. She's the Icon. That's why I say, speaking about his mother, I don't remember if we said this in the first half of the podcast. But if we did, it's just repeat. His mother's name, Miriam. Yeah. I'm just not sure if we, I just don't remember we mentioned yeah, that. I believe you did. Okay, Miriam. We did down. <laughs> <laughs> so, just what are the powers of Icon? You remember the first half of this of this podcast, we said how his life pod altered his DNA to the most dominant creature on this planet, which is human beings. So he has DNA of human beings mixed with his terminus DNA. Now, a a characteristic of terminites is that terminites live for hundreds and hundreds of years. They age slowly once they get into their adulthood. So that is that is a characteristic of terminites. They don't have superpowers, mm-hmm. but they have longevity. Yeah. So which is very Kryptonian, I should point out. Right. Um despite various stories being told, you know, we were told Kryptonians were perfect and they all lived happy and got together well and the whole bit. But then when Clark Kent, you know, baby Kal-El came to Earth, he got a little more by living in our world. Right. You know, what our environment did to him made him even more special than the most special people in the universe. Icons sort of got that going on for him. Right. Now, the mix of terminus, terminite DNA and human DNA, the byproduct of that gave icon his superpowers so i just want to say alan it's about time that earthlings have something <laughs> <laughs> what do we bring to the mix yeah yeah, yeah. yeah yeah and based on the side effect when the two dnas was mixed he inherited the ultimate best or 100 percent full dna of human beings so this mixed with his terminus dna again gives him his superpowers and so unlike Superman, which gets his powers, nourishment from Earth's yellow sun. Yeah. Argus, Augustus, Icon, is a mixture of the two DNAs. Now, he has some powers that are similar to Superman. Mm-hmm. And then he has some powers that Superman doesn't have. So he has the power of flight. He has the uh, power of speed. It's, he has a whole bunch of Superman-like powers. Invulnerability. Invulnerability. Um, although not to that incredible nth degree that Superman has, which you and I have often talked about as a little bit of a bugaboo for me. I I get older, and you start to... I just can't switch comic books. Oh, come on, man. That's a cop-out. I want to know how the guy that can touch Lois Lane's cheek and enjoy you know, the, the softness of her skin can grind diamonds in that same hand right. just, and not get hurt, not feel a bullet, not do this sort of thing. When we get Icon, the guys that created him clearly thought that through. And it was, well, he has to be aware of attacks. And he can sort of move the energy from one place to another and he's tougher if he knows it's coming or his powers are more sensitive more passive he has sensorial abilities 
he can feel things. He can see things long distance and all that. But if he's in the middle of a scrap, suddenly, you know, he's invulnerable and nothing makes a mark on him. I like that. It's a, it's another ability, kind of taking the power, the energy. You've got, you know, so much energy, but you can work the machine differently depending on what you put it into. Um, there's a character. You know, this is just we're nerding out here now. <laughs> there's a character in the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, it's called Ultra Boy. He has all of Superman's powers, but only one at a time. Right, right. Because he's supercharged with this energy. His default is he's always invulnerable. That's his body protecting itself. But if he wants, he can have super hearing, or he can have super speed, or any of the other Superman abilities. But then the invulnerability goes out the window. He can switch back. But if he's not ready, if he's like thinking, I'm going to look at Saturn and see what's happening over on Saturn, and a guy walks up behind him with a sharpened spork, he's going down. Icons less silly than that, mm-hmm. you know. There's always a degree of strength, always discreet, a, deg- a degree of invulnerability, always the speed. But he can jack it all up if he's aware of it, if he needs it. He can pull it up. I like that. It's a nice little twist on the character. Super stamina. There you go. S- superior reflexes. Yep. He's self-sustaining, meaning... He can survive without eating, without breathing. He can survive the the cold temperatures in space. And even though this is not documented, I'm sure he can survive the hot temperatures of a star. Probably. I mean, if we're going to say that is as needs require, he can direct that energy into whatever talent, whatever power. We've seen Superman flying to Coronas of Suns. Um, so Icon should be able, in my book, so can Icon, <laughs> you know, um, if he's one of those type of archetypes. And, you know, the heat there, it's incredible, but I just see him shrugging that off. And and then probably, you know, I would love to think if these guys had written that kind of a story that he has to hang out in the atmosphere or the upper atmosphere for a few hours till he cools down because he's going to bring that heat with him. Whereas Superman, the writers of that character, you know, okay, now back to Earth. Well, dude, (laughs) you're radioactive. You were just in the middle of the sun. Don't come back to Earth, you know, for a few days. I think Icon, those kind of stories. I like those imaginative, I don't want to say scientifically accurate, Mm -hmm. because it's comic books, and sometimes even I have to grumblingly go, yeah, it is, I guess. (laughs) But I find him... More plausible. Right. I'll put it that way. Right. Not plausible, just more plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, amazing powers. Um, uh, the healing factor. Right. You know, 1993, Wolverine was probably at his peak. Uh, so let's throw a little bit of that in there. Plus, it also gives us the ability to say, well, he take, took a round to the chest when the kids broke into his house. He wasn't ready to be completely invulnerable. So... He's got to heal. And depending on, you know, time and degree of injury, you know, it's it's a good bit. I like it. His costume actually comes from materials made from his uh, from from his from his star part. Yeah. His star part and all that. And he has 
the information tool or the info tool mm. and the maker. Yeah. The info tool is like software yeah. where it takes information from anywhere in the universe, any type of information, it stores it. The maker is hardware. Yeah. So his costume is made from his star pad with obviously alien material. Yeah. And he created a costume because times when he's not expecting an attack, yeah. that costume will yeah. will basically save him. It's, Even his, the, it's his bulletproof vest. Right. You know, it was bulletproof vest when he's not paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's when you want it. Everybody tugs it out. You're uncomfortable, you know, until the guy comes up behind you. Um, and it's a it's a great costume besides the 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 super science behind it you know the fictional science behind it um it's red and green and those are opposite colors on the color wheel so they pop against each other um there's always uh that that cape with just you know it's all bunched up at the the clasps and it just pulls out behind him and it can disappear into the dark or it can be, you know, flowing. And it's just wonderful things you can do with it. You can show all sorts of dynamism and kinetic energy with that cape. If he's moving fast, it's, you know, it's a line behind him of straight green. Uh, if he stops up, it billows up behind him like a green cloud. And he just, you know, oh, my God, Zeus has just come down and right. he's PO'd at us. Mm-hmm. Um, so much you can do with that outfit. Um, the touches of gold, the touches of black. You've hit on something about the color scheme that yes. I hadn't considered. I look at the color scheme. I see red, I see black, and I see green. And that's the colors of the African flag. So I'm sure that was not by accident. I am digging his green cape. His cape is just so full. I mean, the oh, best yeah. cape ever made, in my yeah. opinion, was Batman's cape. Oh, yeah. But, um, For the same reason. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I'm digging this icon cape. Yeah. I'm just really digging it. I just want to mention, I gave a little cliffhanger at the first half of this podcast that this is Augustus Freeman the Fourth. Why Augustus Freeman the Fourth? And I'm talking about the same person because... As we, as we just went over, a ability of termites is that they are long-living beings. So over the years, Augustus would pretend, Augustus would go away and come back and pretend that he is his own son. Mm-hmm. Because obviously you cannot have a being who for all intents and purposes was born in 1839 and here he is in 1993. That just does not work on our planet. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a little out there. It's just, what's wrong with your nose? Um, yeah, it's a it's a, a another thing that goes back to the Superman archetype. Well, I take that back. Again, I'm gonna wax nerd here. Um, we go back to the character of John Carter of Mars, created by Edgar Rice Burroughs in oh, 1914. I think maybe it was as late as 1917. Um, there's a line in it where John Carter, who looks to be this uh, you know well-built 30-year-old man, talks about never remembering his childhood, and as far as he can tell, he never ages. When he encounters the Martians, these perfect people on an alien world with technology better than ours, as <laughs> you pointed out, seems to be the way it works. Um, they're a long-lived people as well. So amongst them, it's never noticed that 
John Carter should be aging. <laughs> it just doesn't. Um, and then, of course, like we said, we get Superman. And, you know, we look at we look at our kids. And they're born and they go through their, you know, ages of their life until they, you know, puberty and, and then, you know, they're they're ready to leave the nest. It's a very slow process if we compare it to kittens. You know, a year later, you got a cat. Right. It's, you know, wow, we could just, you know, crank these things out if we wanted to. Babies turn into adults over 20 years. Mm. Um, you know, I remember you know, going off to college, and I didn't look all that different than the 16-year-old I'd been a couple of years earlier. Um, with Icon, that only flies for so long <laughs> before it's like, I think i got to take a walk uh-huh. and come back in 10 years and, you know, leave myself my stuff in a will, something like that. Right. Uh, it's a great gag. And um, he can drop the will. He's a lawyer. He's a lawyer. <laughs> he cover all the aspects. It's a gr- I didn't even think of that. That's great. You know, the idea that ain't nobody getting my money. Right. You know, which is very Republican. Yep. You know, and if I can, I'm not paying taxes. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a great gag, and I love that he's done it enough times that he's been the same guy four times. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Why he's hesitant to change his name to Bill, uh, I don't know. Um, he's got his reasons. <laughs> well, Alan, this has been a very quick hour. Once again, thank you for inviting me into your oh, home. It's been great. And this is going to be our first in a series of podcasts highlighting black superheroes or African-American superheroes. Take your choice of how you want to be or how you want to refer to them. But Alan, once again, Alan Vickers, who is the manager of New England Comics, which is in Malden, Massachusetts, on Pleasant Street, 5.5 miles north of Boston. Again, my pleasure, my honor to do my first podcast on location (laughs) in your home. So for all you streamers out there, you can stream Beyond the Rim on your favorite podcast application. You can download us on iTunes. You can subscribe to us on YouTube, or you can visit the website, btrmike.com. That's btrmic.com. Hashtag follow, hashtag stream, hashtag retweet. On Twitter, Nestor Dudley. Signing off. Until next time, buenas noches, hooches, cooches. I came in peace. I leave with love. This is for the red, the black, and the green. Living cool, living calm, living clean. I'm out.